Welcome to episode 25 of season 2 of the Search with Canada podcast. My name is Jack Chambers Ward and I will be your host for this week. I am joined by the CEO and founder of Mobile Moxie, Cindy Crum. But before I get to my interview with Cindy, which will be the bulk of the episode, this episode of Search with Canada is supported by Systrix, the SEO's toolbox. Go to systrix.com slash SWC if you want to check out some of the fantastic free tools, such as the Instagram hashtag generator, href lang validator, checking your site's visibility index, or the Google update tracker. As well as their fantastic free tools and their premium features we've talked about on the show as well, Systrix do a fantastic job of their newsletters. I'm going to highlight the Trendwatch newsletter this week and talk about the latest two editions, essentially, of this newsletter. One available for free on their blog if you go to systrix.com slash trends and one which is available in the newsletter which is delivered directly to your inbox every month. Let's start with the monthly newsletter one, shall we? And we'll dive straight into a couple of topics covered here in Trendwatch. Talking about wedding guest dresses, and unsurprising to many, I'm sure, weddings have been very big this summer. (laughs) After essentially the world being closed for two years, suddenly, me myself included, I got married in May this year, suddenly everyone is searching for wedding dresses, and wedding guest dresses specifically is the traffic trend we're going to look at here. And before you ask, this is the kind of dresses you should be wearing as a wedding guest going to somebody else's wedding. It's estimated that this year, 2022, will be the busiest wedding season in 40 years. And like I said, I've already contributed to that (laughs) a few weeks ago myself, so I'm part of this trend. I don't know, plenty of people who were attending my wedding will be looking for this sort of thing as well. So yeah, if you want to dive into some stats and have a look at trends and the significant peaks pretty much every summer when it comes to people searching for wedding guest dresses that is one of the trends highlighted in the most recent trend watch newsletter and kind of related because i was talking to my wife about this the other day is the brand the ordinary which is a skincare company out of toronto in canada they are kind of trying to do something a bit different they have a very kind of clear branding style and they go for this really minimalist black and white no BS style. And I think that's really what kind of drew my wife to that that brand in particular. We try and avoid a lot of that kind of upselling marketing stuff you see so much in cosmetics and skincare and stuff like that. And I think my wife has done a fantastic job of seeking out this brand called The Ordinary and really looking at what separates them out. They really focus on a couple of the like active potent ingredients get rid of all the buzzwords, get rid of all the fancy marketing stuff and really focus on what why it's effective. And it's that kind of no-fluff approach that I think is what separates them from so many other brands in the skincare industry in general. And it ends up being really good value for money, at least according to my wife. Again, we're not sponsored by The Ordinary, just giving you the anecdotal evidence here from my wife. And they're an interesting one because... They focus on the active ingredients. They're able to get those much more cheaply and without the extra kind of, you know, markup on the price. 
you then get access to that active ingredient at a kind of much cheaper rate in general, rather than stuff that doesn't actually affect your skin. And the reviews for my wife have been really fantastic over the last sort of year or so. And yeah, there's been a massive, massive spike in interest about August last year, as you can see, if you have a look at Trendwatch. And you can really see interest has, has kind of picked up over the last year or so. So definitely something to keep an eye on and a brand I think is going to be pushing things through in the skincare industry. Next up, we're going to dive into some UK data for people searching for holidays as well. And this is available, as I said, if you go to the Systrix blog, if you go to systrix.com slash blog, you can find it there. Or if you go to systrix.com slash trends, you can find the trend watch and sign up for the newsletter there as well. The newsletter was actually done by the fantastic Nicole Scott, one of the data journalists over at Systrix. And this time, the trending search topics for summer holidays in the UK is done by our friend Steve over at Systrix. So looking at holiday insurance, looking at travel insurance, uh, even branded terms such as like EasyJet holidays, Disneyland Paris, similar to the wedding guest dresses we just talked about, there is a noticeable, very, very noticeable trend towards people searching for this as the world is opening back up and travel is now more available and all that kind of stuff, as you would expect. So if you want to have a look into some holiday-based things and you've got a client or you've got a website yourself that deals with this kind of thing, it's worth keeping an eye on this kind of stuff. And you can do that by subscribing to the monthly Trendwatch newsletter by going to systrix.com slash trends. And without any further ado, here is my interview with the fantastic Cindy Crum. And welcome to the show, Cindy Crum. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here with you. So for the listeners who don't know who you are, first of all, shame on them. But second of all, give them a little intro about who you are and what we're going to be talking about this week. Yeah, sure. So my name is Cindy Crum. I am the CEO of Mobile Moxie based in Denver, Colorado. We are a consultancy as well as a uh, tool set company. We have the first mobile oriented uh, SEO tool set out there, I would say, uh, that's kind of comprehensive and, and in my mind, giving more realistic data than a lot of the tools that people use every day. And I've been doing this forever, <laughs> do, doing SEO since about 2005 and focusing on mobile since about, actually, two, SEO since 2003, focusing on mobile since Ooh. 2005 and uh, running this company since 2008. Wow. Wow. I so, know yeah. we, we had some high numbers to it. We had uh, Catherine Watier on a few weeks ago and she was like 17 years in SEO. So 2005 was the cutoff point. I think you might you might have had her beat. <laughs> you know, it, back in the day, there wasn't a whole lot. You just subscribed to Jill Whalen's newsletter and read it every Wednesday, and then you did stuff that she said. And that was back <laughs> in the day where they didn't as, separate PPC from SEO as much. It was all just merged into one sort of digital marketing bubble. Yeah, well, it was all just showing up in Google, however. <laughs> So we're going to dive into some mobile SEO stuff in various forms, but I kind of want to start off with, let's start with the real, real basics. So okay. you specializing in SEO and going into mobile SEO specifically, what encouraged you to do that? And and what is mobile SEO and how much has that grown, you know, you've been, since you've been doing it for so long, basically 
before smartphones, which is a yes, fascinating, before smart, fascinating yeah. concept. <laughs> and the early days of those horrible little scrolling. I, I remember those days. I'm old enough to remember those days, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so I started, um, I started talking about mobile SEO because I noticed that it was different and the rankings were different. And I had switched jobs from a job that I was very unhappy at to a job that and I was overworked to a job where they di didn't have enough for me to do. And they were paying <laughs> me and treating me much better. And so I felt the need to like do something to thank them. Um, and they had even, they had given me such a raise that I went and got a new phone. And it, with my new phone, I had been testing the searches and saying, hey, these rankings are different. And so I started trying to figure out why are they different? And then reading mobile development blogs and applying what I knew of SEO to the mobile development and saying, hey, like this, they're doing bad stuff. We know that what they're doing is bad for SEO. Maybe that's why the rankings are different. And everyone at the time, and well, not as much today, but at the time, people were just rehashing the same SEO articles over and over again. At the time, it was a lot of title tags and meta descriptions. And That's still like that. true in 2020. <laughs> it's a little bit more <laughs> away from the title tags, but uh, yeah, it's still very similar. And I wanted to write something that hadn't been written before. Like, what's the point to me? I don't know. I didn't get excited by writing something that's already been written a hundred times. So I started writing about what I was finding in and uh, the research that I was doing. And then there was a conference that wanted uh, someone to talk about mobile SEO. And so I submitted myself and said, you know, I've been doing this research. I haven't actually done it for a client, but I can tell you what I've found. And they said, yeah, good enough. And then that, that conference still ended up getting canceled, but I got bumped to a bigger show, um, which was exciting. And then it just so happened that my very first talk in the industry ever, uh, Danny Sullivan was the moderator. And I was talking about how at the time people were still not sure how to handle mobile and everyone was buying .mobi domains, thinking that might be the answer. And I was on a panel, I was very young, I think I was 25 or so, and on a panel with much older and more male colleagues that were saying, uh, and like in suits and stuff, uh, saying that everyone should just go buy .mobi domains and .mobi domains are the future. And then I got up and said, you know, .mobi domains are going to be bad for SEO because it's a separate domain and you have to start over. Instead of doing that, you could take your regular website, trim it down so it's a little bit faster, and then use style sheets to uh, reformat your content. Um, to make it fit better on mobile phones, because that was before we had the concept of responsive design. <laughs> it wasn't called responsive design. That didn't exist yet. But I was like, you could do <laughs> style sheets. And then uh, afterwards, I felt so bad because I didn't want to be disagreeable and disagree with the other panelists. And it was a bit contentious during Q&A. So I went to Danny and I said, hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't need to cause a problem. I wasn't trying to be argumentative. And he was like, are you kidding? You knocked it out of the park. That was amazing. So <laughs> he loved, you know, that I was actually saying things that made SEO sense um, instead of just, you know, trying to pitch selling .mobi domains or whatever it was. So anyway, that's how I got into it. That was before the iPhone existed. We were still, like, the mobile internet was still almost always, um, like, gray and black, uh, it, you know, two color in many cases on Blackberries and things like that with just, like, an image 
like the very, very, if you're old enough to remember the very, very early days of the internet itself, where things were mostly text with an image awkwardly popped in every now and then. <laughs> I remember the early days of like, I don't know if you had it over there in the US, but WAP was the yeah, like WAP, internet service yeah. we had. Yeah, yeah, we had yeah. a WAP over here. It was like, I remember that blowing my mind and just being like, yes. I can have all the power of the internet in the palm. Little did I know we'd have supercomputers in our pockets like a decade or two from then. Well, yeah, I remember <laughs> someone, someone when they got their first smartphone. So this is an even less sophisticated one because it was before I was in the industry and, and before I was even in university. A friend of mine was like, look, this phone has the internet. And it was through like Verizon or T-Mobile and it was their on deck horoscope. Thing. And I was like, that's not the internet. <laughs> and it, it did actually come from the internet. It was updated, of course, daily from the internet. But I was like, that's really just not the internet. Um, and he was insulted. <laughs> you broke his heart. <laughs> Thought I had this amazing piece of technology. It was just some some horoscope landing pages. <laughs> so how, how I know it's gonna it's gonna be a big topic, but how much do you think has mobile SEO changed even from like pre-smartphone now through to you know now we have all these kinds of things through to voice search and that kind of stuff we're going to touch on a lot of that stuff but i guess we're going to try and go a little bit chronologically and trying to go away through it so the the kind of invention and initiation of the smartphone how much did that change for you being at that forefront of the industry already and having you know a few years of experience behind you already that must have been an exciting time for you and a really interesting time to suddenly realize like, oh, wow, this is where we're going with this. It was. It was exciting. And I can tell you, I still have the same advice for people who are trying to break into SEO or make a name for themselves um, is that the only thing that really worked for me, I wasn't really trying to make a name for myself per se. I just found something interesting that no one was talking about. And I took a chance and started talking about it. And I didn't know if everyone was going to gang up on me and say, no, you're wrong. You're an idiot. Um, <laughs> because they very well could have. I, had, I was just researching and I'm like, this is what I found. Um, but uh, luckily, people agreed with my perspective. Um, and it just took being a little bit of brave and saying what I thought. Um, and then being willing to take feedback. If people thought I was wrong, I was happy to find that out because I wanted to know what was right. You know, and so not not having a big ego about it and just being like, this is what I'm reading. This is what I'm seeing. That's fascinating. You know, and if anyone disagreed, say, that's great. Tell me more. I want to learn. Um, <laughs> and it's just changed so massively in those early days. Like you said, there was a whole different language for writing mobile web code, WAP. And there was actually a different one in Japan. Uh, it started with a C. I can't remember. And at that time, Google actually had a separate index for mobile. Mm. Um, and then it's, it's come so far, you know, they, even back then you could have built in responsive design. It wasn't called responsive design, but most people, when, when people figured out that that Mobi was a pain in the butt, um, most people decided that they should put it on their main domain, but they should either do it on a mobile subdomain or a mobile subdirectory. And of course the same arguments we have now about subdomains and subdirectories were had about where to put your mobile content. Is it better on a subdomain or subdirectory and why? Um, and, uh, and then, and that was good because you could not do the entire site and you could have thinner, lighter pages and formatted specifically for, you know, narrow width screens and all that. Uh, but then Google realized like that was problematic for them. 
um, you know, they tried to they tried to handle it with something called bidirectional annotation, where you would have two tags pointing to each other that created kind of a marriage between the mobile page and the desktop page, and the mobile page would rank via the desktop ranking mm. signals. Um, and then Google realized, well, if everyone does this, then we're doubling our effort to have to crawl and index the internet twice, um, especially if we want to validate that the mobile page isn't spammy. Um, and so they they rethought that and they were like, wait, responsive design sounds great. And um, they said, okay, never mind that bidirectional annotation, do responsive design, because then you only have one page and we don't have to combine the ranking signals. The problem was no one knew how to build in responsive design. So they just used <laughs> a bunch of JavaScript and the, the new pages ended up being heavier and slower than the original desktop pages had been. Like trying to cram an original desktop page into a mobile format, <laughs> it ended up being slower because of all the JavaScript. So then Google said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Here's this thing called AMP, um, which basically reverted almost to .mobi or not .mobi, to, to MDOTS, because you had the, they didn't call it uh, bidirectional annotation, but you had to do a bidirectional annotation. Here's my normal version of the page. Here's the AMP version of the page. Um, and, you know, we still have AMP. Um, it's it's not as rewarded anymore, but it's also works on desktop and, and things <laughs> like that. But it is its own subset of HTML, which is kind of like what, um, you know, previous mobile coding languages were. So in some ways we've gone full circle, except to say that now Google switched us to mobile first indexing and they made a big deal about that. Um, and I don't know if, if you've heard my dissent on this topic, but for years I've been saying, you know, mo we were already they were saying, they were telling us that the smartphone crawler was, you know, in many ways, the primary crawler um, before we officially switched to mobile first indexing. And before that time, Google had changed the user agent of the crawler really a lot, kind of casually without <laughs> big notices, like without big warnings. And, you know, the, the communication to SEOs was about crawling, but the thing was called indexing. And so I said, you know, like, why are they calling it mobile first indexing if it's really just a change in the crawler? Mm. And maybe, yeah, it's a change in the default crawler, but that was kind of already the default crawler. And um, my, my idea is that the switch from the old way of indexing the web to mobile first indexing was included the change of the primary crawler, but was also about creating a different like organization of the index that was more flexible uh, for the long-term growth of Google um, to meet newer, more diverse needs on um, what they consider mobile, which I think is a broader set of devices that than what most people think is mobile. I try and remind people that mobile kind of just means portable or <laughs> not tethered, you know, not stationary. And if you think about the future of the internet, um, it's definitely not stationary. And if I'm yelling across my house at an Alexa or a Google assistant, like that's not stationary. That's following me anywhere I go. Cause it's listening to me. 
Um, so I think the 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 concept of mobile is more broad than just a, a mobile phone. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think we'll, we'll dive into a few topics there. I want to wind it back to talking about AMP and stuff like that because you touched on it there. We still have AMP to this day, but there's been a lot of chatter of like the death of AMP and like how Google is not no longer prioritizing that. How much has that changed SEO from from your perspective? And how do you think the the, the quote unquote death of AMP is going to affect like mobile SEO going forwards? Well, so I have. I have unique thoughts on AMP and always have. <laughs> Number one, um, AMP is great. Um, just in general, the AMP language was developed by some of the best programmers in the world, some of the best coders and developers to make things screaming fast. Um, and that's good. And that's not <laughs> just good on desktop. Um, it's or not just good on mobile, it's good on desktop too. Speed is great. Um, and having clean, light, um, predictable code um, is great. One of the things that slows down development and slows down um, browsers is having to anticipate all of the bad, junky code that people might try and throw at it. <laughs> and AMP tried to tighten it down and said, no, like this is what you have to do. And so since AMP came out, I've been advocating for people to, if they could, you know, if if it made sense to do uh, what some people call canonical AMP or AMP only design, um, which is to say, don't have a regular version and an AMP version. If you if you can do the design you want, have just an AMP version. Why have both? Why maintain both? Use the really fast code if you can, and then if you can't. Um, and especially if you're struggling with page speed, go look at what AMP components you can switch in um, for whatever you're using because it's going to be faster. Um, and even if you're not AMP valid, you're going to get the speed benefit without having to reinvent the wheel um, because the best developers in the world made this code super fast. So just do that. Like, don't think too hard about it. If you can, go get a sample AMP code and use that. Um, to replace whatever slow code you're trying to replace. <laughs> um, now, the quote-unquote death of AMP, I get that Google has communicated it, but I wonder how, how much people are actually looking at the data because I do have a client that struggles with speed but had AMP pages um, that just recently someone introduced an error and we missed it for a little while. We didn't notice that there was an error in the AMP code and they were AMP valid pages um, and then they weren't anymore. Um, and we had been getting traffic from the AMP pages and when they didn't validate anymore, traffic fell off a cliff for those pages. So I'm not convinced at all that AMP is dead. In fact, I'm not even convinced that AMP validation doesn't matter. In this case, it absolutely did. Um, so I encourage anyone who's not, who had AMP and then told their developers, oh, well, Google's deprioritized it, do whatever you want. Go look and see how that's working out for you. Because <laughs> if the rest of the site speed is not great, um, it, it could be a big hit. And and why, if, if it doesn't matter, why is there still a separate reporting utility for AMP errors and stuff like that in Search Console. It does matter. It's, if they report on it, it matters somewhere. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an interesting thing because we get this kind of, as much as we give credit to Google for a lot of the transparency that they have comparing to other companies that do not communicate their changes and their algorithms. Like you said, they used to change the crawler bots all the time and now they're a lot more communicative about the changes that happen. But I think this kind of, like, even in my show notes that I sent over to you beforehand, like the quote unquote death of AMP is, has really kind of almost been blown out of proportion and really kind of misunderstood and miscommunicated. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Maybe what I'm experiencing is a unique experience and that website's page code is just that slow and no one else is struggling like that, but I doubt it. I've seen a lot of slow websites. I don't know. Has that been your experience? Do you, are you, you know, looking at stuff like that day to day? Have you witnessed anything like that? Yeah, I, I mostly agree with you, actually. I was talking to Mark about this and we were kind of having a similar conversation of like, I mean, it still kind of seems to be a, like you know, like you said, responsiveness and and speed are still important things. And why not have that benefit? If you have the capacity to have it, then why not have it? Kind of thing. And it right. Seems to... Well, and if it was dead, then validation wouldn't matter. But it yeah. does seem like why are they reporting on AMP errors if there's no such thing as an AMP er AMP invalid or AMP error? If AMP, <laughs> you know, like it exists. It's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. To jump around, um, you touched on voice search earlier as well and like having Alexas and Google Assistants and all that kind of stuff. How much has that changed mobile SEO as well? I know I touched on this a lot with Catherine Watiang a, a few weeks ago, talking about how differently people search with their voice than they do by typing something out. And even the transition from typing it into a laptop or a desktop, then the transition to on a smartphone, and now the kind of next evolution of doing it by voice. How much do you see across those kind of different sides of people searching and, and the ways people are searching through different mobile devices? Like you said, anything that's portal is essential mobile these days. So there's many different ways. And it sounds like it's the obvious thing of like, oh, yeah, smartphone is mobile SEO, but it actually encompasses a much wider thing. Do, do you see a lot of differences between those things from your experience? Well, I see a lot of SEOs kind of... Um talking badly about voice search and mm -hmm. lots of jokes about the year of voice or whatever. And there were lots of jokes about the year of mobile and look where that's landed us. You know, like every year is supposed to be the year of mobile. And then people would joke and say, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, yeah, like stuff like that. There's this S curve of technology adoption where things are really, really, really slow until it gets so user friendly and perfect that there's no reason to not adopt it. And then it skyrockets, right? And that's how mobile search was. Um, and that's how um, that's how MP3s were. That's how every technology goes. There are early adopters and the early adopters suffer with some kind of janky stuff <laughs> for a while. And then they, they fine tune it and refine it. And that it, to the point where it's usable enough for everyone and then everyone does it. And I think that it's easy to forget that, that we have to go through those years. And, and also, I think it's easy to forget that early searches on the quote unquote internet, my friend's horoscope thing was the internet. <laughs> uh, and it was a sucky internet. It wasn't a good internet, but it got there eventually. And so I think that that's kind of similar with voice search and and seos say well if you ask your voice assistant the weather today that's not a search absolutely it is mm. it's not a search that they have that they can keyword research as well for that's the difference 
um, the you have to broaden your understanding of what it is to search. Because if I, let's say I yell at my assistant that I want to play um, Despacito, um, it has to know that that's not a movie. It's a song, you know, and it has to have the archive. Um, and it does have to do a search, even though we think, well, yeah, but that's an easy search. Well, so what? It had to disambiguate that this is a song, not a movie, and it's not going to cast it to my TV. Um, it's going to play it as audio and it's going to pick the right version because maybe there have been, you know, 200 people knocking it off on YouTube. Yeah, I, I've, I've experienced that before where you ask it to play a song and it's like, here's the cover from 15 years later by some band you've never heard of. And I'm like, thanks, Google. That's not what I wanted at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they can get it wrong, but we take for granted that they, that they don't. They get it right most yeah, of the time. Yeah. You assume it's so simple, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so it is a search, even if you think it's an easy search. Um, it's not as easy. And asking about the weather, that, that implies that they know where you are. A and, and they take in different elements of contextual information to apply to the query. And so, yeah, SEOs have a hard time contextualizing voice search as search, and especially when it is, in their minds, an easy search query to find the answer to, um, I get where they, they have that difficulty, but that doesn't mean it's not a search and that doesn't mean that Google doesn't want to be there. And that doesn't mean that you and your clients and your brands won't eventually want to be there. Just like the people who said, blah, I don't need a website. Uh, you know, when the, the internet was new, you know, are, regretted it eventually or eventually had to come <laughs> around usually and say, okay, well, I guess we need at least something on the internet. I guess this thing is sticking around. Um, so I think that voice search is going to grow. I think that discounting it because you don't understand it because it's not an exact allegory for web search um, is a mistake. I think being open to, to understanding that Google is applying, um, silently applying additional modifiers to anything that you yell at an assistant as part of the query is how we get to things like mum. Like this, this is when you have multimodal queries, um, like Google's been doing multimodal queries for a while with voice. They just announced this, you know, mum understanding algorithm, but it's not that they didn't understand it before. It's just that they weren't really talking about it um, because they were applying location and history. And, you know, let's say, I have a favorite cover of Despacito, perhaps. Um, and I've been playing it like crazy on YouTube. Maybe they'll know like, oh, she means this cover and she likes the video yeah. because they've seen all the history of what I've done in YouTube and YouTube music, you know, and whatever. Like all of that, my contextual historical behavior, location, everything else they know about you is part of a multimodal query. So they've been doing that. Now they're doing it more with like on the desktop. So they had to announce it, right? Or, you know, on a mobile phone where with mom, the best example and the most useful example for proving to SEOs that, that people will do this is the uh, example of, the, they have a name for this one search. It's not just mom. They call it like multi-search, I think. Yes, it was multi-search, yeah. Yeah, you submit... Um, picture of someone wearing a dress and you say this 
in green because the original one was orange and Google understands that you want the dress and it tries to match that image with something similar, but in a different color or maybe the exact same thing, but in a different color. Um, and so that that's fascinating, but it's scary. And, and we'll take <laughs> it a step further. And so the other examples that are less commonly seen from Google coming out there is people taking a picture of a bicycle part. Uh, let's see the gear changey thing. I'm not a bike. I, well, I have bikes, but I don't know what the parts are called. Me, gear me too. Thing. I'm, I'm no help here. I'm Fred. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's it's very common thing, right? Um, and, and it's part of the point. So I take a picture of the gear changey thing. I submit it to Google, and my query is how to fix. Yeah. Google has to know what the gear changey thing is called, translate that image into a, a, a word. And then search to find me videos. So not only am I going to learn how to fix that thing, it's going to tell me probably what it's called because Google had to know what it was called to find the information. And how do you do keyword research for that? <laughs> Doing image and keyword combinations at the same time. Yeah, that's going to become a... Right, um, so it's, more and more hassle, I think. <laughs> for us yeah, well, of course, <laughs> hassle. It's our job. I, we I'm, it. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> but but it that is so different and so hard or so conceptually hard to grasp onto that I think SEOs just want to pretend it's not there mm. um, or don't want to use the brain power to think about it um, and would rather just discount it. Yeah, absolutely. I showed when we talked about multi-search when it was announced, like you said, I think it was earlier this year, wasn't it? I, I showed it to my parents who are barely like internet capable and and technology literate they have no they, they sort of order some stuff online occasionally but there's no sort of real interest in internet culture or using it regularly or anything like that and i showed my mum that example of the that you said the orange jess but in green she was like but how does it know i'm like exactly google is powerful they're using so many different technologies combining all this stuff like you said multimodal understanding of everything and combining this whole thing together to really change how we search and yeah yeah my my mum had like no concept of how sophisticated everything had become through voice search and google lens and all this kind of stuff and now recently i've introduced uh a google assistant into my parents house so whenever they have a question they can just do it with their voice but rather yeah. than like oh we go and get out the laptop and pull it out and blah 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 and like they they always they use the word hassle i think that's probably why i had it in my brain like it's such a hassle to go on and switch on the thing and blah 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 like i could just talk at my thing and get an answer of the weather or they're watching a film and who's the person on screen and all that kind of stuff like yeah, yeah it's 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 amazing how sophisticated it is and like you said i'm not sure enough people kind of pay attention to how game-changing some of this stuff can be like you said in the early days of mobile seo people were discrediting you and discounting you like ah oh, no I don't, but who cares about mobile and then now basically everyone in the developed world is wandering around with one of these sometimes two sometimes three on them at one time <laughs> not even just the developed world in the less developed world they sure, skipped yeah. computers and went straight to phones yeah um and so they're in some cases um more mobile focused than the the more developed countries um and it's something that that people 
kind of don't realize, but they, they rely more on mobile in some cases mm. um, because it's cheaper than buying a full computer and of it's course, portable, yeah. you know, da, da, da. But yeah, I think that people are discounting it and um, it, it's smarter and more exciting and fun to embrace it and go <laughs> along for the ride um, and, and learn as you go rather than just saying, well, that's not what I do because it's going to have to be. Um, you know, adapt or what is it? Adapt or die. Yeah. Um, and especially in technology and especially with SEO. Yeah. The, the stuff that, you know, is going to work for a long time, to, but it's not going to be cutting edge or innovative and it's going to be more and more mainstream and there's going to be a race to the bottom in terms of what you can charge. Um, and there's going to be more and more automation, uh, for what is, easy and wrote and you know what we've been doing for years um people have already thought about how to do the automation to take care of that stuff it's the new stuff that's hard where it takes uh creativity and testing and paying attention where you can stay ahead of the pack yeah absolutely so let's talk about testing let's get into how we actually look at mobile results and SERPs and all that kind of stuff. As you mentioned, you've got some fantastic tools on mobile Moxie, such as the Pagerscope and the Serperator and things like that. Should we dive into those a little bit and how they work? I've been using the Serperator for a while. I credit to you and how fascinating and interesting that is and how it's able to kind of give realistic results so quickly. For the listeners who don't know... Sorry, so I, lo I love that you've been using it and I appreciate you mentioning it. And it's not realistic results as it, as much it is, as it is real results. Google thinks we're phones because we pass all the same information that a phone would. So a lot of SEO tools uh, work by using APIs yeah. that Google has said. They intentionally make the APIs a little bit wrong. Um, and the APIs, you know, are like sometimes only down to a country, which like, so countries like the U.S. are so big, if they geocentralize like to U.S., like you're in Kansas, which doesn't help as many people <laughs> as as you would hope, you know. So, um, yeah, so the, the Serperator is a tool we've had for a while, and it lets you choose from a bunch of different phones, uh, choose a location down to a specific address if you want. It can be down to a city or a postcode. We won't let you just choose U.S. You have to go further than that. And of course, it's it's worldwide. So U.S. is just a funny example. But um, choose any any location that you want, um, and um, any language that you want, including script languages, which I tell you because it's hard, and I'm proud that we got it done. <laughs> um, and we've just um, we're adding Farsi right now. Farsi was one that oh, we didn't wow. have. Uh, we had Arabic, but and Farsi has just a couple extra characters. Um, so, so doing the script languages, Chinese, Hindi, Thai, um, those are hard, but they work fine in Serperator. So it's meant to be used. And actually, our number, uh, our number one country is U.S. for traffic. Number two is India. Um, we get a lot of people because there are so many SEOs working in India for uh, non-Indian companies mm. that they love the Serperator because they do testing to see what are, are real people seeing in search results in the countries where they're working. Um, so yeah, it's real search results. And then in the paid tools, 
um, we parse those search results. So the Serperator has a free version on our website, um, and that's just the the view of the phone. We actually, and this is, we haven't even started promoting it yet, but we do have a Serperator extension now in the Chrome extension tool. Oh, there we go. Um, and Breaking it'll be, news. We'll be yeah, it is actually. Well, it, we'll have started promoting it by the time the podcast goes live, I imagine. <laughs> but um, it is slightly different in the free tools on the website because it shows you one phone and then it parses it. So it tells you um, everything that's in the search result. Um, and then we give you what we call the um, actual or uh, the traditional rank which is like what an SEO would rank something as, like this is first position, but then we give you the actual rank, which is like what your parents would say uh, something <laughs> ranks, where you count everything, including paid and including knowledge graph and including right, everything right. that Google injects. So we give you traditional rank, actual rank, pixels from the top, um, and percent of SERP. Um, so you can see that a knowledge graph um, you know, takes up you know, sometimes 10 or 15% or 20% of a SERP, or a map pack takes up 12% of a SERP. Um, or ads, you could say, well, there's three ads and they take up 6%, 4%, and 7%. Um, that's a lot of the SERP. And that means that after the three ads, even if you're in position one, you're at 570 something pixels or whatever, depending on the, depending on the industry. So we give you those things. Um, for that particular SERP, um, and it's device-specific, location-specific, blah, blah, blah. So it's it's what a real phone would get if you're standing in that spot um, and on that phone. And, and a lot of people don't realize, of course, I sh it needs to still be said, results are different, um, sometimes very different from mobile to desktop, usually not super-duper different, but the organization and the layout is, is almost always different because ads are at the top instead of on the side. And if there's a knowledge graph or a map, it's at the top and pushing everything organic down. Um, and so that's worth knowing. Um, if something is, you can be proud of position one all you want, because maybe it's the best you can do in your mind. Um, but if you're still not getting seen because everything above position one is pushing you down, <laughs> then there's less to be proud of, right? Like maybe knowing that this query always has five ads means that you deprioritize that in SEO. If it's a really mobile oriented query and it's dominated by ads and maps and knowledge graph and stuff that's harder to get. Um, we, in the paid tools, we score those things. So we score, we have something called a mess score and I'll tell you, I hate the name mess, but it's the only, we wanted something with an M, but it just means it's like messy to rank for. It's hard because <laughs> there's a bunch of googly stuff that's really hard to, to displace, right? Like, yeah, you can outrank knowledge graph, like maybe Good luck. Yeah. I've seen it happen <laughs> once or twice. But trying to do that is is a fool's errand. Mm. It's not a good use of anyone's time and money. Really. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and that's something you don't get from a lot of the kind of keyword research tools you'd be using day to day. Just looking at SERPs through those, and you know, content explorers and all that kind of stuff, you would not get that kind of SERP real estate understanding of what your customers, potential customers, potential users are going to see. That's a really, yeah. really interesting like delve into SERPs. I think we don't really do that often. <laughs> well, and and uh, I think it's more and more important. And I think that even if Google isn't intentionally being nefarious, um, mm. they are 
they are not actively reporting on all of the stuff that they've started injecting into the search results, especially mobile search results. And that's why I thought it was really important to have the traditional rank and the actual rank because, and the pixel height, because position one is almost meaningless if you're below a lot of stuff. And the stuff that Google puts in is usually more colorful, more pictures, more interactive, they're expanders. Um, and it's keeping people's attention much more than a blue link. Even if your blue link has some schema, like you're, you're hard pressed to compete with people also ask where they don't even, the user doesn't even have to get to another website and wait for it to load. They can just get the answer that they want. And really that's what users are searching for. They're not searching to click to your website for the most <laughs> part. They just want what, what they want. Yeah, absolutely. I know that's been very controversial for a lot of SEOs. The fact that Google is kind of taking content that has been written onto the SERPs and you're never getting that click through to your site. Right. You're never actually getting that. They're able to deliver the content that you've poured your blood, sweat and tears into and then right. delivering it essentially for free onto the, onto the SERPs there as well. Well, so here's an interesting point um, that I think is relevant to keep in mind is um, I imagine you saw a couple months ago when um, the knowledge graph for London switched mm. um, from being uh, credited to Wikipedia to being credited to Google. And so Google used their own AI to rewrite what they knew about London, presumably from Wikipedia <laughs> and other sources. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's, there's a reason they're doing that. Number one, Google has the capacity. They're good at AI. That's what, you know, that's a strong suit for them. Uh, but number two, they want to get out of any of these intellectual property um, disputes and uh, lawsuits in the EU and around the world uh, that are from people who are mad that their content is being lifted. So Google's like, no worries. We're not going to lift your content. We'll read your content and learn from your content and rewrite it. <laughs> Um, and so expect more of that because this is, you know, when we think about Google as a business, what can they do to protect their interests? Well, they can stop doing things that piss people off and that cause lawsuits. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big factor of why we're seeing GA4 and that announcement coming through and GD, as you mentioned, the EU and GDPR and this whole kind of privacy and data issues we're seeing globally at this point now but yeah i think google is definitely moving towards that as you said kind of protecting their interests and protecting themselves we even talked a few weeks ago about how much money they were making from ads and all that kind of stuff and then going on to the ppc side of things how much that's being automatically optimized and just like yeah your optimization score isn't 100 percent. it's like yeah but it's actually functioning better for me and my client if it's not 100 percent but it makes Google less money. So it's like, oh, the, right. it's, like you well, said, and, there's and a nefarious a, element there as well, right? <laughs> absolutely. Well, and maybe it's not intentionally nefarious. Oh, sure, it just sure. plays out that way. <laughs> I think that most people have good intentions, but something else to think about from a mobile perspective. So one of the big pushbacks I got for many years um, and still get is that, yeah, why do I want to optimize on mobile? No one clicks through on mobile, um, which is in some cases true. You get less click through on a mobile search result. And it's because Google is doing so much to make other things that aren't your website uh, look good and to get the answer in the search result faster. But here's the thing that SEOs forget. Um, and again, thinking like Google as a business itself, 
people weren't clicking through on mobile ads either. Um, and so what was so what is happening now, and I think this is part of what we're seeing in um, a lot of the new features that are coming out, is um, Google is adding more and more query refinement options throughout the SERP, especially at the bottom. Did you mean narrow this down? Uh, they have different ways of phrasing it, but it's not just related searches anymore. Um, and sometimes you can get a three pack of like, did you mean this? What if you search uh, other people search for this next? Mm. Like just all of these suggested new searches, uh, but also same with um, disambiguation and related topics in the knowledge graph. When you click on any of those many things uh, that are like a query refinement, um, it all it does is launch a new search result where they can put more ads. So yeah. give the user more opportunity to click on their ads because people weren't clicking on their mobile ads either. Just like people weren't clicking as much on mobile websites, they weren't clicking as much on mobile ads. So Google's trying now to show more mobile ads from what's perceived as one query, even though it's kind of a path or a query journey, if mm. you will. And, and they talk about that in Mum too. I think that that's somewhat related to Mum is this query journey concept and when people people are on that path, they think, well, I searched for this. Well, you actually, like, you did a search for this, and then it opened another search for that, and you eventually got where you were going, um, but it wasn't just one query. And Google loves that. <laughs> that's giving them more data, right? That's, that, like we said, that's... More data and more opportunities for people to click so that they can charge for an ad. Exactly, exactly, which is the end of the day, like we said, Google is a business, so... That's kind of the, the the be all and end all. The unfortunately, at the end of the day, um, something you briefly touched on there as well. I think interesting talking about like attributing mobile traffic, and um, again, I touched on this with Catherine a couple of times as well. Like, a, there is basically no way to accurately measure voice search as far as we, there's no like view or property in analytics or search console that you're able to actually get your voice search data reliably there and i know there's been a lot of issues with um attributing app clicks coming through to and being misinterpreted and misattributed to direct traffic instead of actually coming through and all that kind of stuff H have you experienced that kind of shifting as we're seeing more people using apps for stuff you get the kind of like in-app browser thing that i absolutely hate that drives me nuts where oh yeah i've got all my like you know my usual stuff saved on my mobile browser and then it opens in the facebook browser so i'm like go away facebook i don't want to see that how do you think that affects again i guess that's kind of the opposite side of it right they're trying to keep users in their ecosystem in the same way that google is doing it for the subs i guess <laughs> right right well and facebook wants to track what you're reading and what you're looking mm, at in that digest. article that you've clicked on too <laughs> yeah so um, it's interesting. I, I, my hope, of course, like many people, is that GA4 will solve these problems. Obviously, there's a lot of dissent um, and um, concern that it yeah. won't and that it'll make <laughs> things worse. Um, and that may be true as well. Um, we, we may suffer for a while. Um, I think um, it's in Google's interest to do a better job in attribution, I think. Um, because it does help them um, potentially, you know, we, TBD, we'll see when we get the data, <laughs> but potentially it gets them out of some of these intellectual property concerns where people are like, oh, well, Google lifts our stuff and people never see it. If they can do a better job with attribution, they can say, no, like, 
this person saw you in five people also asked and then clicked through to your website and is now a regular subscriber and buyer and lot, you know, it's a, an awareness play. Um, and that's much harder. That's always been harder to measure. Um, so, you know, there's that hope, but it, yeah, with, it's another thing to say, like with the Facebook browser, yes, that's a bad experience. And it used to be much worse, actually. Facebook browser used to really struggle with JavaScript. Mm. And so I've seen people, what was it? Stuart Weitzman, a shoe brand, um, launched this ad campaign in Facebook. And um, when you clicked on the ads, it was like, design your own Stuart Weitzman loafers. Um, and they had all these colors and things like that. And when you're on the web, it worked fine. And when you're on an iPhone, it worked fine. So presumably the person who made the ad um, and developed the landing page had an iPhone. <laughs> um, but they never tested it in Android. And oh, in the no. Android version of the Facebook browser, you couldn't choose anything. And and Android, you know, lots of SEOs forget, like, because lots of SEOs, they index high for iPhones, but lots of, uh, you know, half the world has Android still. In some countries, it's more. In some countries, it's less. But but it's about half still. And so Stuart Weitzman was wasting, you know, maybe not half of their budget, their ad budget, getting people to a landing page that didn't work, but at <laughs> least a third of it. Yeah. You know, if we think that a, a third is on desktop, a third is on iPhone, and a third is on Android. Mm. Um and so stuff like that, if, if you're a, a marketer, you should be aware of it. But from a tracking perspective, it's just a mess. I don't have a good answer here. It's a mess <laughs> and I hope it gets better. Yeah, I know. Um, we uh, Like I said, we touched on it quite a while ago. And I think it was back in episode two of season two. So we're talking sort of, you know, six months ago or so I'll, I'll leave a link in the show notes for the listeners you don't want to click through uh we had a fantastic article about how to dive through and actually re-attribute everything and fix it all and make sure you know uh we were working with a client at the time who had uh worked with strava and a promotional thing which is a, a running tracking app and they had built this thing and it clicks through from strava directly to the site I all just went to direct traffic and we were like, where is yeah. all this Strava traffic going? What is happening? We're getting all this stuff from that. We know it's working because we're getting, you know, contact forms on the website and all that kind of stuff and referrals. So where is this all going in analytics? And yeah, we went through this whole process of re-attributing everything. And it was such a like difficult process, such a, you would think it would be something that would be fairly simple, like you said, because we're moved, we're, we're so sophisticated now with, understanding how much of the web is being searched on mobile and things like that you would think it would be a fairly straightforward thing so fingers crossed for ga4 fingers crossed for the future <laughs> well here's something interesting too in the same way that google seems to plan to use ai to get out of intellectual property concerns with like the london knowledge graph example I think that they're going to do the same thing, or they've already said they're going to do the same thing, perhaps for similar reasons in GA4, is they're going to take all this data and they're going to model the attribution methods. And perhaps in their mind, especially, but maybe in reality as well, their modeling is going to be an accurate representation of where traffic does come from. Um, and so they'll use this AI to kind of fake it. 
uh, and say, oh yeah, like we so don't worry, nothing to to be concerned about here. Mm. You're getting that traffic. It's just <laughs> we had to model it in our in our analytics so yeah. that you would feel better and know that you're getting it and know how and why. Um, so that's, but let me, let me actually, you mentioned our tools and I feel like it's a good time to mention, uh, the Pagescope one too, because, um, with, you know, broken JavaScript and also with what I think is the future of SEO, that's also exciting, which is, um, edge SEO. Um, we're having, um, more and more stuff that is being injected in the last minute, um, when a page is rendered, um, to, theoretically um, help SEO. Um, and if you're not aware of Edge SEO, that's kind of what it is. You use your CDN and programs on the CDN or the Edge to do things like pre-render all the JavaScript um, or add in your um, uh, href laying or your schema or whatever um, so that you don't actually have to go beg the development team to do it. You can just have <laughs> this middle layer to, to, that you control to do it. Um, and that sounds great, but can quickly get messy if different teams or different groups have access to the edge and are writing or overriding people's rules that are already um, set up or you can, you know, it, it could get messy quickly. And I can I can even give you an example um, with a client of mine. Um, they just built uh, a utility to handle redirects and they told the SEO team, like, this is your new utility to handle redirects so you don't have to bother us anymore. Um, just put them in here and they'll be done. <laughs> um, and it was um, it was an edge SEO thing that the development team figured out that they could do and they were only doing the redirects for Googlebot Mobile. Um, and so when I would run a crawler through, um, crawler was saying, you know, no more than two, two hops and usually just one a plus. Um, but when a user was doing it, sometimes there were still infinite loops or eight chain redirects, um, because this was only handling the problem for the bot and the, the you know, the dev team was well-intended. They wanted to do the right thing. They just didn't realize like, yeah, but the redirects help users too. Like, and also core web vitals, like Google is going to see that this, this is just still really slow for users, even if it's fast for the bot. Um, cause core web vitals is based on real user experiences in the browser. Um, so, uh, so we built the Pagescope with stuff like that in mind. Now it can be used for a lot of things. It can be used for conversion optimization and, and you can, it gives you an interactive uh, view of any page and you can click through and interact with it all the way through conversion. We recommend not putting real credit card numbers in there, but you could, <laughs> um, and you could buy stuff from a website, um, in our, in our pages scope. Um, but, um, it's also great for edge SEO and technical SEO because we give you the phone, um, and the raw and rendered code and a diff checker. And those are device specific. So for instance, if you're sending different code to, to an iOS, uh, device versus Android, or you're sending different code to desktop, um, we can show you that. And in the paid tools soon, um, you're going to be able to diff check, not just for one page on one device, but diff check this page from mobile to desktop rendered or from mobile to desktop unrendered or from today rendered um, and three weeks ago rendered. Oh, so amazing. it's great for 
yeah, it's great for like, hey, this this page template is falling off a cliff and we don't remember changing anything. What changed? Well, you can go back and grab the code mm. and compare today to when it worked well and say, oh, they lost the schema. How did that happen? <laughs> you know? Um, so so that's all handy. And that's that's what you get. So we have the free version and there's a, um, there's a Pagescope plugin in the store as well. And those you get 10 free tries a day, which for most people is enough. Like you don't need more than that. But if you want to track things over time and capture it, um, then that's when we, we make you pay. But it's it's useful because one of the main things that I've seen when I go into offices um, and I'd say I go and evangelize mobile SEOs, people <laughs> will sit while I'm talking and just do searches on their phone. And the minute they get a break, they hold their phone up to their neighbor and say, when did this happen? And it's something that's popped into a mobile search result that since they're testing and doing all their work from a desktop, they hadn't looked at a mobile result and Google's added a knowledge graph or a map pack or an app pack or something mm. that they didn't know was there that was pushing them down. And so that's the reason we created the paid versions of the tools. Um, and we call the ones that track history, uh, the datalyzers. So there's a page datalyzer and a SERP datalyzer because we grab that and we still parse it all and then let you see you know, what changed? Oh, well, now your position one ranking, you've had position one ranking the whole time, but now it's at 800 pixels. Or now it's only 3% of the SERP when it was 5% of the SERP or whatever. Um, so you get to see over time and answer attribution questions that usually in with regular SEO tools have been left to the ether. Because like, how do you answer when did this happen? Nobody knows <laughs> because no one else is taking history mm of the, the, so it could have, and you just hope, and you're like, oh, see that drop? That's when that happened, you know? And you're just like, you just assert it, but you don't have any proof, you know? You go to Search Console and you're like, oh, this, uh, this it dropped off right here three weeks ago. Yeah, That's when probably they introduced that, but you don't have proof, you're just guessing. So this, this makes it a bit more reliable so that you can feel better about saying, oh, well, that's, that's when that dropped off. <laughs> Amazing. Well. Listeners, if you do want to check that stuff out, like I said, links in the show notes for Mobile Moxie and all of the free tools and the list for all the paid and pricing and all that kind of stuff as well. Uh, that is pretty much all the time we've got this week. So, Sydney, how can people find you on Twitter, on the rest of the internet, across various social medias and things like that? Yeah, Twitter is 100% the way to reach me. Email and LinkedIn are all kind of a mess. I do respond to emails, but it's <laughs> it's safer on Twitter. Uh, there's less spam there so far. Um, so yeah, Suzix, S-U-Z-Z-I-C-K-S on Twitter or the Mobile Moxie account. Um, I'm in there a lot too. I have other people in there, um, So, but you'll get help. Um, that's the best place. And then also, um, if you think I'm interesting, we have a whole YouTube uh, channel of me doing uh, all the talks that I've done in the past couple of years. I also put on YouTube. Um, so you can get more interesting tidbits there. Excellent stuff. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've learned a lot this week. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you, Cindy, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to interview and really interesting to dive into the history of mobile SEO over the last 15, 20 years or so. I hope you learned something, listeners. I know I certainly did. 
and I will be back next week with my co-host Mark Williams-Cook to discuss all the latest in SEO and PPC news. So please do subscribe, please do have a lovely week until then, and thank you very much for listening.